0: Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We come to the end of the uh, season of Epiphany, um, and um, each... Uh, in the liturgical tradition, at the end of this, we always hear the reading of the transfiguration. As we transition and shift to contemplating upon Christ's saving acts on the cross, we remember that before that happened, before he turned his face to Jerusalem, he um, was transfigured before his disciples. And so those two things are held in tension with one another. In the book, Alice of Wonderland, there was one point in which Alice laments her inability to believe in impossibilities, and the Queen encourages her with this response, I dare say you, you haven't had much practice. When I was younger, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six things before breakfast. N.T. Wright says that in this transfiguration, the material world that we have come to know through physics, chemistry, astronomy, biology, botany, zoology, and other sciences are being filled with God's glory. That what the prophet um, Abak had envisioned is coming to light. The earth is being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. (coughs) Wright claims that not only in Jesus' transfiguration, but in his healings and the miraculous catches of fish, the outlandish feedings of crowds and turning water to wine, and quieting storms and walking on water. Something new is happening, and it's happening to the material world. What the story of Jesus on the mountain demonstrates for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear is that Jesus seems to be the place where God's world and ours meet, where God's time and our time meet. That he is the place where, so to speak, God's matter and God's new creation intersect. And it forms a signpost for us to follow when looking for God. In many ways, the story of the transfiguration parallels the baptism of Jesus. But in the baptism, the divine encounter happens to Jesus. In the transfiguration, the disciples are the one who experience this divine transformation. As with everything in the gospel narrative, the moment is extraordinary, but it is soon over. But as the Grateful Dead said, we are all in need of a miracle every day. We oftentimes think that we are shut out of these miracles, these signposts, these experiences with God. We have been trained by our culture to ignore and disbelieve that God still speaks and still shows up in our life. We are told to not believe that the power of the Holy Spirit can still be made real in our life. I was once told by a therapist that when making an argument, a but modifies whatever comes before. I love you, but I want to help you, but and so his advice for me was to watch out for my buts. We find one of these buts in the great prayer that we pray at the Right One service, the prayer of humble access, in which we pray, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but we are reminded that God is the God of mercy, grace, and forgiveness, that God modifies our unworthiness. Several months ago, our Uh, pub theology group looked at the work of Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher who is known for his landmark book, A Secular Age. Taylor wants to answer what seems to be a rather simple question, why 1,500 years ago was it impossible to not believe in God, but today not believing in God seems so believable. Taylor explores the world today, a world that he calls the secular age, but Taylor does not mean secular in the way that we often mean, a world without religion. Rather, Taylor says, secular in a nuanced way in which a a world in which all belief systems are contestable and any claim of divine action is questioned. After the Enlightenment, Taylor says, my personal happiness, my individual experiences become the supreme good. Mass manufacturing has per- permitted a world in which everything can be customized to my own personal desires. Everything from a cup of coffee to uh, items in a car can be personally chosen just for me. We live in a Burger King world in which, yes, we can have it our way. The enemy, he says, is not so much the evil that we can't control, the enemy is that which does not conform to my meaning making. Now, Taylor is not calling for a return to the gold old days. He is simply stating what is. He notes that he, he, we lost power. So either God is trying to silence me um, or, uh, or, or we're having a, a power outage here. So Taylor notes that uh, in the post-1950s world, the Christian thought was is that we had a duty to fight the secular culture, that we were to win back territory. That a lot of our just innate and um, immediate reactions as Christians um, are formed from this worldview of believing that religion is in contest with the secular. We see any and all changes in society as the secular world creeping into God's world and that we think that our religious calling is to push back. But Taylor has another option for us. Taylor suggests that maybe we wait. That there are moments in which the God who created the world, the God who redeemed the world through Jesus Christ, the God who sanctifies us in the power of the Holy Spirit still shows up in oftentimes miraculous and unbelievable ways. Is the thing that we are experiencing a coincidence? Is it God? Is it a figment of our imagination? I don't know, but keep your eyes open and you might find Jesus. This whole new creation that we find in Jesus Christ in his resurrected world is an intersection of heaven and earth that is joined together in Jesus. Right in his book, Simply Jesus, recounts another story of transfiguration from the 19th century, a mystical natural story about a Russian disciple, Nicholas uh, Motovov, who pays a visit to Seraphim of a well-known saintly hermit, and asked him how one could know if god is present it's a cloudy day and they're sitting on a tree stump in the woods and as motto told tells it father seraphim gripped me firmly by the shoulders and says my friend both of us at this moment are in the holy spirit you and i why don't you look at me i can't look at you father because the light flashing from your eyes and face is brighter than the sun, and I'm dazzled. Don't be afraid, friend of God. You yourself are shining just like I am. You too are now in the fullness of the grace of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to see me as I see you. Then I looked at the holy man. I was in a panic-stricken picture, and the sun's orb in the most dazzling brightness of its noonday shining the face of a man Who is talking to you. You see his lips moving. The expression of his eyes. You hear his voice. You feel his arms around your shoulders. And yet you can see only the blinding light. Which spreads everywhere. Lighting up the layer of snow. Covering the glade and igniting the flakes. That are falling on both sides. Like white powder. What do you feel? As Father Seraphim. An amazing well being, I replied. A great calm in my soul, a peace which no words can express, a strange unknown delight, an amazing happiness. I'm amazingly warm. There is no scent in this world like this one. I know, said Father Seraphim, smiling. This is as it should be, for divine grace comes to live in our hearts within us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more, go to ChristChurchTulsa.org and peace be with you.